Welcome to Bayou City. As you're sitting down, grab a Bible and uh, tell somebody on your right and left, I'm glad you're here. All the introverts are like, oh God, no, please don't talk to me. Don't make me do that. So we've been in this series called uh, Together, and we've been looking at the things that we do when we gather together. Week one, we looked at Hebrews chapter 10, that when we come together, you and I have a responsibility to encourage one another, to stir one another up towards love and good works, and we should do that all the more as the day of Jesus's appearing is drawing near. Uh, near. So I would encourage you to ask, what does it look like for me to serve all the more? What does it look like for me to attend all the more? What does it look like for me to encourage all the more as Jesus's return? It's closer and closer. Then we ask the question, why do we study the scripture when we come together? Last week, we talked about why do we take an offering when we come together? You know, it's a really simple series, but um, one of the things that God has been showing me in it is it's a simple idea, these ideas, but God cares about them very much. And it seems like the stakes are high. Like even when we talked about giving last week and making an offering and giving to the church, Acts chapter five tells the story of a husband and wife, Ananias and Sapphira. And there was a spirit of generosity in that very first church and they got caught up in it. So they went and they sold a piece of property that they owned and they brought a huge percentage of the profit to the church and just gave to the church, not 10%, not 20%, not 50%. I mean, we're talking 70, 80, 90% of the profit. The problem was that they let everyone believe that they had given 100% of the profit. And so in that sense, they were lying. And Peter says to them, listen, why the money was in your wallet, it was essentially yours to do whatever you wanted with. But you shouldn't have lied. And, and they both died right there in the presence of church. Imagine coming to church and somebody gets funny with the offering and <laughs> that's what happened. Today we're talking about why do we take the Lord's Supper and, and how should we take it and what does it mean? And in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, we're going to see that Paul says, listen, some of you have grown weak and ill and some have even died because you, you are not taking the Lord's Supper properly. So even though these are simple ideas, the stakes are high because God loves the church he cares about the church, and we should too. Luke chapter 22, let's see where the Lord's Supper, or communion, as you may know it, or the Eucharist, which is a Greek word meaning Thanksgiving, where that all comes from. Luke 22, verse 7. Then came the day of unleavened bread, on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. So Jesus sent Peter and John, saying, go and prepare the Passover for us that we may eat it. And they said to him, where will you have us prepare it? And he said to them, behold, when you have entered the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him into the house that he enters and tell the master of the house. The teacher says to you, where's the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room furnished, prepare it there. And they went and found it just as he had told them and they prepared the Passover. And when the hour came, he reclined at the table and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup and when he had given thanks, he said, take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. 
And he took bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them saying, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup after they had eaten saying, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. But behold, the hand of him who betrays me is on the table for the son of man goes as it has been determined. But woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. And they began to question one another, which of them it could be who was going to do this. A few things I would love for you to write down and remember about the Lord's Supper. Number one, the Lord's Supper takes us into the past. The Lord's Supper takes us into the past. So the Passover was an annual holiday. The whole nation of Israel would stop to celebrate it. There would be a Passover sacrifice in the temple and in homes all across the nation, there would be a Passover dinner. And that is what Jesus sends Peter and John to prepare. Both events were memorials to remember how God had rescued their ancestors out of slavery in the hands of the Egyptians. It was also known as the Seder, which is a Hebrew word meaning order, because there was a specific order in which this meal was eaten and the story was told. I brought a few of the elements that would have been there that night as Jesus was breaking bread with his disciples. Uh, There would have been uh, a few cups of wine and there would have been associated blessings with the wine. There would have been parsley dipped in salt water and that salt water uh, represented the tears of their ancestors in the midst of Egypt and their slavery. There would have been uh, unleavened bread with uh, some bitter herbs. This is horseradish, which is incredibly bitter in case any of you are hungry uh, right now. And they would eat this and it would bring tears to their eyes so that they could remember the bitterness of their slavery. There was unleavened bread because in that original moment in the book of Exodus, while they were in Egypt, there wasn't time given in the instructions for the bread with the yeast to rise. And so all of the bread was unleavened. And forever from that moment when the Passover was celebrated, there needed to be a leavened bread that was used. And so they had a different uh, order that they went through. And these were some of the elements. There were more elements. It was in the, the context of a bigger meal and they would tell the story. And let's read the story together. Exodus chapter 12. You remember the Israelites are enslaved in Egypt and they're in the hands of Pharaoh, the king, and they cry out to God, God rescue us. And God sends a rescuer, a deliverer, Moses. And God uses Moses very powerfully. And through Moses, God visits nine plagues on the Egyptians. But Pharaoh stands strong through all nine. But the 10th plague is going to be the one that breaks him. Because what's going to happen is God is going to send a destroyer, the ESV translates it, or the angel of death, other translations uh, render it. And the firstborn sons of every family in Egypt is going to die. But God gives instructions to the Israelites to sacrifice a lamb and put the blood of that lamb on the doorposts of their house. And when the destroyer comes, he will see that blood and he will know that these people have honored and followed God and it will pass over their house. And that's what happens. Verse 29. And at midnight, the Lord struck down verse 29, the firstborn in the land of Egypt from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on his throne to the firstborn of the captive who was in the dungeon and the firstborn of the livestock. And Pharaoh rose up in the night, he and all his servants and all the Egyptians. And there was a great cry in Egypt for there was not a house where someone was not dead. Then he summoned Moses and Aaron by night and said, up, 
go out from among my people, both you and the people of Israel, and go and serve the Lord as you have said. Take your flocks and your herds as you have said and be gone and bless me also. So Pharaoh, whose heart had been so hardened towards God because he was the king God. He was the top of the pyramid. He was everything in Egypt. His, his heart was finally broken and he releases the Israelites and they would celebrate this Passover feast annually to remember this moment. And it's in this context that Jesus holds up the bread, the unleavened bread, and he holds up the cup and he says, this is my body and this is my blood. And the original Passover was to remind the Israelites that their God was a God who saves, that he had saved them out of the hands of Pharaoh and the Egyptians. And Jesus is saying the same thing. God saves so that when you and I come to take the Lord's Supper, we are reminding ourselves our God is a God who saves. He is the God of salvation, which is important to know in this climate. We're in a political climate right now, an election cycle, uh, where even among Christians, there is a lot of hand wringing. There's a lot of fear. There's a lot of anxiety. And you're hearing things like, oh, you know, we need to do this and we need to rally together so that this happens. Because if this doesn't happen, then this thing will always happen. And if this happens, then this is going to happen and that's going to happen. And what if this and this and there's just a lot of hand wringing uh, among people, especially among Christians, uh, as we look around. But when we take the Lord's Supper, what we're reminding ourselves is, No, our God is a God of salvation. And we live consistently in the same cycles that we see in the scripture, which is tribulation, rescue, blessing, tribulation, rescue, blessing. There will be tribulation. There will be trouble. Jesus said about you and I uh, that we shouldn't be surprised in this world. You will have trouble, but our God is a God of salvation. And so the tribulation will pass and there will be rescue. There will be salvation and then there will be blessing. So we know as Christians that no matter what happens, when all is gone, the only things that we will be left with, salvation and blessing. So we don't need to wring our hands. We don't need to be afraid. We know how the story goes. And the Lord's Supper reminds us of that. Takes us into the past to show us that our God is a God of salvation. Number two, The Lord's Supper takes us into the future. Luke chapter 22, verse 16, Jesus said, For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. Luke 22, verse 18, For I tell you that from now on, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. In Revelation chapter 19, we see Jesus resuming the eating and drinking that's associated with the Passover. Verse 6 Remember, John, the disciple, is getting a tour of heaven and things that are to come. And this is what he records in verse 6. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. 
Then I fell down in his feet to worship him. But he said to me, you must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. So John sees this picture, what the angel describes as the marriage supper of the lamb, a giant dinner party. And this party is so off the charts that people give God worship for it. And the worship sounds like Niagara Falls. It's incredibly loud, like the roaring of many waters, like the worst Texas thunderstorm that you've ever heard. This is the worship coming off the people who are celebrating the marriage supper of the lamb. And what is that? That is the uniting of Jesus with the church. And you think, well, what's the big deal about that? Well, this is what we're seeing. We're seeing a moment where faith has now been made sight. That there is no longer a barrier of the followers of Jesus between time and Jesus. Between distance and Jesus. There are no barriers. There's only being united with him. And think about who is there having their faith be made sight and celebrating with Jesus. Like our brothers and sisters in eastern India who for the last handful of years have had to flee from their villages because of the persecution from Islam, uh, uh, Hindu fundamentalists. They've had to live out in the woods with their family. They can't live in their home. They just have to flee out into these woods. And sometimes they'll venture back, but a persecution, persecution will flare up and they have to go back. And why are they living out in the woods? Because of faithfulness to Jesus. But one day their faith will be made sight and they'll see him who they sacrificed so much for. Or you think about right now in North Korea, some North Korean prison work camp. There's a faithful, faithful pastor there who was arrested for faithfulness to Jesus. And he's going to be at this celebration and he's going to be celebrating with the one, seeing the one who he held his faith for. But not, not just people like that, normal people like you and I. Normal people who resisted that flirtatious advance out of faithfulness. Uh, who studied a little bit longer. Who prayed a little bit more. Who endured a little bit more. Who stayed later. Who served more. Who went the extra mile. Because of faith. Our faith will be made sight. And when we come to take the Lord's Supper, it takes us into the future to remind us one day we are going to see the things in which we have believed. It takes us into the future to remind us one day we're going to celebrate this meal, not just in honor of Jesus and in remembrance of Jesus, but with Jesus himself. It takes us into the future. Also, the Lord's Supper takes us deeper. It takes us deeper. Luke chapter 22 verse 19 it says this is my body which is given for you and verse 20 this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood now what's interesting is this is not the first time those disciples have heard Jesus talk about his body and blood and eating it and drinking it turn to John chapter 6 At the beginning of John chapter 6, it records the story of how these hordes of people had followed Jesus out into the wilderness to hear his teaching. And about dinner time, their blood sugar starts to plummet. Everybody starts to get a little hangry. 
And the disciples start panicking. Like, how are we going to feed all these people? And they take a survey and all they're left with, all they can find is five pieces of bread and two fish. And you remember the story. Jesus blesses it. He prays for it. And it feeds 5,000 plus people with quite a few leftovers. And the people were just in awe of this. And in fact, it says that they were so overwhelmed that they tried to take Jesus by force and make him their king, make him the king of the whole nation. And he, he recognizes that this is what they want to do. And so it says that he slips deeper into the mountains, deeper into the wilderness. And the next day they come to find him. And, and he says uh, to them, uh, he says, essentially, you are seeking me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. He, he's like, you, your bellies are full of my miracles and you just came out today to see if that would happen again. And so he's getting ready to drop a huge stumbling block in between them. He's about to divide the wheat from the chaff, the sheep from the goats, the faithful from the faithless. And this is what he says in verse 53 of chapter six. And he said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the son of man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. And whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. And I will raise him up on the last day for my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. And whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. As the living father sent me, I live because of the father. So whoever feeds on me, he will also live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. And Jesus said these things in the synagogue as he taught at Capernaum. And when many of his disciples heard it, they said, this is a hard saying, who can listen to it? In verse 66, it says, and after this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. Now, what does Jesus mean when he says to them, you must eat my flesh and drink my blood. What does he mean there in the last supper when he's instituting the Lord's supper, when he says, this is my body broken for you. And this is the blood, my blood of the new covenant. You know, people have really debated for generations and millennia now on the definition of is in those statements. This is my body. For example, you have the Roman Catholic Church and the way they define that is through a theological term called transubstantiation. And it means that the substance of the bread and wine is literally transformed into the body and blood of Jesus. So it's no longer bread and wine. It literally is uh, body and blood of Jesus. One step from them, you have the historic reformer, Martin Luther. And Martin Luther says, no, the substance is still bread and wine. It tastes like bread. It tastes like wine, but it uh, contains, it's more than bread and wine. It contains the body of Jesus and the blood of Jesus. One step from him, you have uh, John Calvin, another reformer. And he said, no, it spiritually contains the body and blood of Jesus. And at this point you're like, well, I, I don't really care. I kind of got lost in all of this uh, containing business. And one step from John Calvin, you have this guy named Ulrich uh, Zwingli. In case any of you are looking for baby names or you want to switch your last name. <laughs> He was Swiss. 
uh, he said, no, it just represents, it's just symbolic of the body and blood of Jesus. Doesn't matter to you, but I find myself aligning more with what John Calvin said. I think there is something very supernatural and spiritual about the Lord's Supper. I think it spiritually contains the body and blood of Jesus. And the reason I think that is what we're going to see in 1 Corinthians 11, because people were dying and getting sick because they were taking it wrong. And so I think something spiritual is happening there. But I don't think it literally has to be the body and blood of Jesus because of his teaching here in John chapter 6. He says, uh, he says, eat my flesh and drink my blood. But you can see none of his disciples come and try to take a bite out of him. He's not speaking literally. So what does he mean? If he's not speaking literally about eating his flesh and drinking his blood, what does he mean? Well, in verse 54, he says, whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life and I will raise him up on the last day. If you go back a few verses to verse 40, he says that everyone who looks on the son and believes in him should have eternal life and I will raise him up on the last day. So the the two outcomes are the same in both of those verses. Eternal life and Jesus will raise him up on the last day. But one says, eat my flesh and drink my blood. And the other says, whoever sees the son and believes in him. So we know that seeing Jesus and believing in him is the same as eating his flesh and drinking his blood. But it's aggressive and it's gritty and it's intense and it's intimate. And, and, and you sort of start to feel uncomfortable the more that it says, eat and feed and drink my blood. It's It's very earthy and it's almost offensive. Now, remember who he's speaking to. Why would he talk like this? Remember who he's speaking to. He's speaking to thousands of people who have come to hear more from him because they had their bellies full yesterday and they would like their bellies full again. They have self-centered motivations for following Jesus. Now, if I asked you today, why do you follow Jesus? I'm sure there would be a long list of very true and authentic reasons. But a sign of spiritual maturity that you and I are growing up is that Jesus himself begins to move towards the top of that list just for who he is and what he has done and who he has claimed to be. That Jesus himself would be the primary reason for our following and all of our self-centered reasons would get further and further and further down the list. Because here's the problem with having a self-centric faith. When your belly is empty and you are in great need, faith soars. But when you are full and content and life is good, commitment wanes because you don't really need anything. And so if you find yourself running hot and cold, up and down, it may be that you and I have motivations like these first followers of Jesus, that I want to be around for all the benefits that come my way. And Jesus would drop a stumbling block in the middle of our room today. And he says, if you're going to follow me, you're going to eat my flesh. You're going to drink my blood. Jesus takes a sledgehammer to self-centric faith. And remember, he is the one who said, if you're going to follow me, you're going to take up my cross and follow me. And the cross 
always ends up at Calvary. It rarely detours to the country club. But that's what we would love. We would love to carry the cross of Jesus, but end up in an easy place, end up in a smooth place, end up a place where we always get everything that we want, where things are easy and nice. If we could combine those two things in ease of life, And the cross of Jesus, that would be perfect world for us. But the cross of Jesus always ends up in a hole in the hill of Calvary. And if we take up his cross, we will eventually end up there too. And we will suffer along with him. But he shows us there's something on the other side of that suffering. There's something on the other side of Calvary. And that's resurrection power. That's resurrection life. We've been wanting ease, but he is offering us something better. On the other side of tribulation, there is salvation and blessing. And the Lord's Supper reminds us of all of this and it takes us deeper. This is my body, which is given for you. This is the cup that is poured out for you. It's the new covenant in my blood. The apostle Paul quotes these words in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, uh, 11. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, turn there with me. And this is where we'll finish this morning. So how do we take the Lord's Supper? We unite, we remember, we proclaim, we examine. We unite, verse 17. But in the following instructions, I do not commend you because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you and I believe it in part for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. When you come together, it is not the Lord's supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry and another gets drunk. What, exclamation mark, do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. We should be united when we come to the Lord's Supper. And the Apostle Paul, he writes to the Corinthians and he says, you are not united. You are divided when you come to take the Lord's Supper. And they would take it as Jesus originally did uh, in the context of a bigger meal. And so they would have a big church supper. And within the midst of the church supper, they would celebrate the Lord's Supper. And what was happening is the wealthy in the church were showing up early and they just started eating and they ate most of the food. And so by the time the poor got there, all the food was gone and the poor were going away from the church meal still hungry. And then you have this third group who said, Hey, there's wine here. Let me have some of that. And they guzzled and they guzzled and they guzzled and they were leaving drunk. So you have some leaving full, you have some leaving empty and you have some leaving drunk. And Paul says, this isn't the way that it should be. When you come together, there shouldn't be any divisions among you because the Lord's supper is a great unifier of the church because the only way that we can be united is to be great at forgiveness. If you're going to be a member of a church, not just this church, if you're going to be a member of a church for more than three months, you're gonna have to be good at forgiveness. Because news shocker, everybody here, just like you. 
and you are both offended and offensive. And so we offend and we are offended, but we have to practice forgiveness. We have to practice forgiveness because that's what we taste when we taste the bread and we taste the cup. And how hypocritical would it be for us to take in the forgiveness of Jesus offered to us into our bodies, but hold on to forgiveness that we need to offer to someone else. We should come united. We come remembering. He says in verse 23, for I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also he took the cup after supper saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. We come remembering when we come to the Lord's supper, we come with our mind engaged. We remember the past. We remember Jesus. We remember the future. We remember when we remember, we learn reverence. And where there is reverence, there's renewal and holiness. I've been watching the Olympics a lot. I uh, love Usain Bolt. Any other Usain Bolt fans? I feel a little weird about that because he's not American, but uh, he's Caribbean. So we're close. We're close. But he's just great. I mean, he's just the fastest person who's probably ever lived in the history of the world. And, and if you've been watching Usain Bolt, I'm kind of over the Olympics by now. I need the Olympics to be about 10 days and not 30 days. It's starting to get a little bit boring. But uh, if you've been watching Usain Bolt, when he gets into the blocks, he has this routine and he, he touches himself. So I think he does kind of a cross thing and then he double taps his chest and he points up. Now I'm not judging. That could be a deeply reverential thing for him. But then you also see baseball players uh, doing it. You know, they hit a home run and they cross home plate and they do one of these things. Uh, and it's kind of like, hey, hey, I did two parts and God, I guess you did one part. <laughs> two parts for me, one part for you. This is great, you see that. And we can all slip into that. We all slip into that. Uh, hey, me and you together, we're in this. Uh, I've been doing really great. I'm sure you get a little bit of the credit somewhere. But you hear it in country songs, listen to the way the country songs uh, sound about God. I love George Strait. George Strait's got a weird view of God. It's very much, uh, you know, man upstairs and uh, looking down from me in a hole in the floor of heaven and, you know, all that. Just very, just casual, very casual. But what we see in the scripture today is it's not casual. The Lord's Supper should not be casual because what we're doing is we're obeying Jesus. Eat my flesh and drink my blood. It's not, it's not casual. And we remember that. And it creates a reverence in us. And where there's reverence for things that are holy, it leads to more holiness for me. More obedience from me. Remembering reverence holiness. We remember, we also proclaim verse 26, for as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. When you come to take the bread and the cup, you are making a proclamation to the world that I am a follower of Jesus. I'm a partaker in him. It's first Corinthians 10 says it. It's a proclamation. Pro pro proclaiming the Lord's death, the broken body, the crushed body, the shed blood. 
He says in John chapter six, verse 55, if you remember that his flesh and blood is true food and drink. And what we are proclaiming when we are taking of that flesh and that blood is all of my life apart from Jesus is famine. If he is true food and true drink, then everything in my life that is not connected to him is famine. It tastes good. It's nice, it's warm, but it's a cotton candy diet. It is not sustaining. And when you and I come to the table, we come proclaiming, declaring that everything in my life apart from Jesus is famine. Even the good things that taste wonderful, famine. My job, famine apart from Jesus. My home, famine apart from Jesus. My family, famine apart from Jesus. My future spouse, famine apart from Jesus. My hopes, famine apart from Jesus. My dreams, famine apart from Jesus. All of my life is empty and will not sustain me apart from him. This is what we are proclaiming when we take the Lord's Supper. So today, if you're like, I don't know where I stand in all this. I'm just seeking it out. I got invited by a friend and here I thought all these people were really nice and warm, but Jesus is saying, eating my flesh and drinking my blood. Now I'm having second thoughts about the whole thing. That's wonderful. That's wonderful. Jesus would want you to count the cost before you count yourself in. Because until you're ready to say, listen, everything that I have, everything I have is empty, famine apart from him then you and I are not ready to take the Lord's Supper. We proclaim, we also examine. Verse 27, and whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. And anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So this is why I say, I think something supernatural happens when you and I come and we take from the bread and we take from the cup because these people, they were... uh, They were divided and they were being selfish and they were being drunk. And some of them as punishment, as discipline, they were getting sick and some were even dying. And so I think there's something supernatural about what we're doing. And so Paul says, listen, before you come, you examine yourself. You test yourself. You press everything through. And what are we looking for? We're looking for sin. We're looking for sin and we take the opportunity to confess our sin. Before you come, you think through your life. Is there anything today that I'm, uh, any active sin in my life that I'm gonna come and pretend is not there when I take the Lord's Supper? Taking the Lord's Supper is our opportunity to come clean so we can be clean. Because we cannot clean ourselves. Can't do it. A lot of people trying. A lot of people trying to, to get rid of that stain of sin by painting it with more good stuff. Some of us are just hoping it fades over time. You can't get rid of that stain. You can't clean yourself, but we don't have to. First John chapter one says, if you confess your sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We examine ourselves 
because it's an opportunity to come clean so we can be clean. You wanna be forgiven today, all you have to do is confess your sin. You confess your sin to God and he promised it, promises that he is faithful and just and he will clean us, cleanse us. So we examine ourselves when we come to the Lord's Supper. So it was a lamb's blood that saved those Israelites in Egypt. It's the marriage supper of the lamb that we are looking forward to. First Corinthians five, verse seven calls Jesus the Passover lamb. And it was John the Baptist on the banks of the Jordan River who when seeing Jesus said, behold, the lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. And this is who we are proclaiming today at the Lord's Supper the Lamb of God who has taken away not just the sins of the world, but taken away my sin and taken away your sin. So why don't you stand up? We're gonna celebrate the Lord's Supper together. Those who are helping us, are gonna come and serve it. Take their places up here in the front. Well, before we do, uh, again, while those are getting prepared, you know, you, there may be many of us today who are feel kind of on the fence about the whole faith thing and the Jesus thing, and you're still trying to figure out. And I just want all of us to imagine, you know, us being some of those original Israelites in, enslaved in Egypt, and we get the word that judgment is coming, punishment for sin and rebellion is coming. It's coming, but there is a way of escape. There's a way of escape. What are you going to put over your doorpost if you're? there in those original moments. Some people are just going to ignore it and go, oh, that's probably not going to happen. Uh, some people are going to say, well, that's not the God that I've heard of before. I've heard of a God who does this, that, and the other, and surely that wouldn't happen. And Some people are going to reflect back. They're going to search their Instagram account and they're going to see that time that they fed the poor and they're going to frame that and put it on the doorpost. And they're going to get that uh, picture and of that time that they gave $5 out the window to the homeless person. They're going to put that on there and then they're going to put a picture of their granny on there because she's so wonderful and she loved them and they helped her that one time. And they're just going to paint their doorposts with a bunch of pictures of good stuff that they've done. Other people are going to write the name of other religious leaders on there and hope that that's going to pass. And so what makes us Christians today is we've looked at all of those options and we have said, no, I will take my chances with the blood of the lamb, the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. The only name and blood I want on my doorpost is the name and blood of Jesus Christ. And so today, if you find that faith swelling in you for the first time, all you have to do, according to Jesus in John chapter six, is see him and believe in him. And so if you see and believe today, then you come and you take the Lord's Supper proclaiming, proclaiming his death until he comes. So God, we ask that you would make this time as holy, as powerful, as intense, as intimate, as special, as celebratory as you have always envisioned it. We pray that you are honored by the way that we remember your son in this church. Help our minds to be active so that our hearts can be reverent. And we pray that we would be changed 
because we've partnered with you, participated with you in your body and your blood. In Jesus' name, we ask these things. Amen and amen.